Another day Another dollar Makes you wonder where your money went You can scream And you can holler Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough. Or even if they don't dictate, it is almost always the case during my 50-mile commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas. Back on the road, guerrilla podcasting, as it were, once again. And um, I think Friday's show went really well. I had a bunch of other calls queued up, and I was really hoping to get another show done over the weekend and uh, you know preloaded for like Wednesday this week and that didn't happen I'm going to still see if maybe I can do it one evening this week and uh, do another show like that so I'd like to do more of those and I'm starting to build up a pretty big backlog of your calls and I think they're great shows because we get diversity and I know I'm giving you what you want because you're asking for it right so uh, sometimes I really wonder when I put a show together is this what people want and I try to do my best with that uh, and occasionally I think I maybe I missed the mark and I come up with a topic and people are like like, yeah, what is this, you know. But I think most of the time I hit it. But it's it's always uh, it's always with your feedback that I try to come up with new subjects. So it's with uh, it's actually with some negative feedback that I've seen over the story that went out two weeks ago that I don't talk enough about the big disasters that today's, uh, today's show topic came up, which is going to be the, some big ones, some things that, you know, what are some things that could really change the landscape of the planet, at least from a, a standpoint of how it we as humans survive. Big global stuff. And because I'm going to be talking about that, I want to point out, no, I've not gone over to the tinfoil hat brigade and fabricated one for myself. And I'm going to give you credible threats to our existence today. All of them are low probability events. I mean, in other words, they're, they're, they're out there. They could happen. They might happen. Some of them even eventually will happen, according to the best scientists we have. It's only a matter of time before they do. But the probability of them impacting you as a person, as an individual, is a lot lower than the things that we talk a lot about, like, you know, your individual survival. A regional event, a, a local event, an individual event is far more probable. But these are much higher impact events. So that's what we're going to talk about today. And I'm going to talk about natural ones, and I'm going to talk about ones that we've made for ourselves. And uh, we'll see how that goes. Before I want to go do that, I want to go do my quick house cleaning. Uh, first, if you uh, think you get more than 25 cents of value per show, please consider joining the uh, Member Support Brigade and get exclusive content only available to members uh, that join the brigade. And uh, it's $5 a month or $50 a year, your choice. And you can find uh, details on how to sign up at thesurvivalpodcast.com and in today's show notes at thesurvivalpodcast.com. I actually did a video this week, folks, that are in the brigade already, haven't edited it yet, I'll try to get that done the next day or two, uh, but it was how to use some of your common preps to make food that you would actually want to eat, and uh, I did a, uh, a little video on making uh, clam and fish chowder out of stuff, everything in it is something you either can store or produce for yourself, I did use some fresh ingredients, uh, but in a, uh, you know, kind of a shit hit the fan scenario, you would be able to use 100% preps to make this, and 
and it can be adapted and used with wild fish, uh, you know, fish, fresh fish if you wanted to, or just about anything that comes out of the ocean or a lake that's edible. So, uh, consider joining the Members for Brigade. And uh, another one I wanted to point out real quick, uh, Dirt Time 09 out in San Bernardino, me and 13 other uh, survival experts talking about everything from knife making and bow making uh, to myself. I'll be talking about survival gardening and survival permaculture. Uh, that's a pretty big event, filling up fast. You really want, if you want to go, you want to sign up soon. Uh, Alan Halkin has told me they haven't even ran uh, the... Uh, what am I trying to say? The advertisement in the magazine yet. And uh, they're already almost full uh, as it is. Next, uh, make sure you uh, consider if you're anywhere near Texas coming down Memorial Day weekend for Region 5's big bug out camp out get together. Uh, that should be uh, really cool, really fun. And uh, come one, come all. You don't have to be in Region 5 to come to that details in today's show notes. And I think that pretty much wraps up uh, the house cleaning for today. I'm going to keep it short. So let's get on to this. What are some of the big threats out there? Let's start out with some natural threats. Things that there doesn't have to be anybody doing anything stupid or wrong for them to happen. And that's why I believe the human threats come from people that take actions that are stupid or wrong. And a lot of times it's more stupid than wrong. In other words, I'm saying it's more incompetence than malice. But with humans out of the equation, what are some of the things out there that could really, I mean, global level, national level at least, events that could change the life of every human being on the planet in a second. One that's been getting a lot of press lately, and I, I think people are taking that there's something new about this. There's nothing new about this. It's been going on for, you know, billions, five billion years that the Earth's been here. Um, I think it's four billion, 4.3 billion years. Whatever number of billions of years that the Earth's been here, this has been happening to it uh, in regards to our sun, and that is uh, solar storms, solar flare activity emitting plasma pulses that hit the Earth's atmosphere. And this actually happens almost every day. Not every day, but almost every day on a limited scale. And our atmosphere does a really good job of protecting us. It's what keeps us alive. We don't get irradiated by our own sun because of our atmosphere. And uh, that's, you know, if you go up north, way up north into Alaska, what have you, during the parts of the year, especially when it gets dark out instead of the, you know, you know, 18 hours of daylight, you go up there when it actually gets dark and you look toward the North Pole and you see these beautiful lights in the sky, the aurora. Borealis. That is the northern lights. And I've seen on really high uh, high activity uh, days from the sun, I've seen the northern lights as far south as upstate New York. And uh, they're beautiful. They're, they're something that, you know, hopefully in your life you'll see them. But they are a reminder of something sinister. And that is that every once in a while our sun has a bad day, a bad hair day, so to speak, right, for the ladies out there. And it gets angry, and it throws out a huge mass of plasma. This happens a lot more often than I think people realize. The, the thing is, if you think about our sun, it's huge. You could put, you know, I don't know exactly how many, but thousands of Earths into our sun, and it would, would not fill it up, right? It's, it's a massive ball in the sky. And then it's 93 million miles on average away from the Earth. 
and if any one thing gets cast off of that sun in any given direction, there's only a, a small area of opportunity for whatever's being thrust off to actually hit the Earth. It has to be on the same side that we're on at that time of the year. If it's low or high on the sun, if it's a left or the right, you know, basically what I'm saying is we get near misses all the time. But every once in a while we get hit, and we get hit with a big one. And that's when you might see northern lights further south. And we've had things happen already um, not very long ago up in Canada. A fairly large portion of uh, some uh, northern electrical uh, grid got shut down. We've had it interfere with cell phones and communications and satellite communications uh, here and there. So it does happen. What the concern is that one day we could get a really big one, and that really big one might just line up with being able to smack the Earth dead center in our uh, our mid-range across our atmosphere, and enough of that plasma will get through, and our current electrical grid can't handle it if it does. And you look up and you see all these big high-tension wires all over the place. You look in your residential neighborhoods, you see all those transformers, and those high-tension wires and those transformers and those big green boxes sitting on the ground those are the biggest things at risk if this happens. And what it will do is it's going to be like a giant EMP. It will shut down the entire electrical grid um, if it's big enough. Even a, just what they're calling a significant event, uh, the areas that are most in danger are the east and west coasts of the United States. And there's an article, I'll see if I can find, a link to, that shows like on a significant event where a lot of power might still be up in the United States and where a lot of power might be down. Now the problem with this, this isn't like like, okay, you have a hurricane and it knocks down some power poles or a tornado and it knocks down some power poles or some idiot with a backhoe digs into something and shorts out a, a substation. Um, this is not something you just go put back together. The, this grid, this electrical network that we have out there that supplies you know millions and millions and millions of people with power was built over almost 100 years of time. There's, there's cables in the ground that have been there for close to 100 years now. That's how old this is. And, and it's not that it's old because you put you know insulated copper in the ground, it has a pretty infinite lifespan, uh, especially with electrical current running across it. It doesn't break down. So it's not that it's old. It's just you have to think, how long did it take us to get this thing built? How long have we been little ants incrementally building our electrical system? And what we've learned is we've built an electrical system the wrong way. We've built it in a way that is not designed to tolerate this this uh, type of activity from our sun. And then eventually we have the threat of having the grid shut down. Now when you think about it, the entire United States, electricity is out. What does that mean for mankind? I'm not going to go deep into that because I want to talk about the threats today. And if I start going into the impact, you know, we won't we won't get through very many threats. But that's just one. Another natural threat. This is one I bring up a lot because it's one of the most difficult for a, a disbeliever uh, in the theory that we could have a global disaster to refute. It's very difficult to refute this because every scientist that studied it in any depth says, "Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna have this happen sooner or later," and that's global disease pandemic. And yes, it could be H5N1, the bird flu. 
it could be a mutated version of a disease that we've never even seen before. It doesn't matter what the disease is. In fact, I'm going to give you a little statistic today, or a little fact today, that most people I would I would bet on out there don't know. You're not aware of this. There was a disease at one time that killed somewhere estimated between one-third to 60% of the earth. They're not really sure how many people it killed. It struck in the 1300s. It was known as the Black Death or the plague. And it spread across the entire earth, as far as we can tell, and wiped out people everywhere. It hit the hardest in Europe, in eastern, northern, and northern Europe, um, or western and northern Europe, but it, it reached other pockets that we're not even sure how it got there. And it killed tons and tons of people. And we have been led to believe by our history books, especially in our you know dumbed-down history we teach our children, that the bubonic plague is the culprit. Still with us today, it's in rats, and you can get the plague, and you can die, but it's very rare. And like the places that are the biggest at threat aren't cities where rats are rampant running through the sewers, but it's out in these areas with these wild rats that are more likely, you know, there's places in New Mexico where if you go into the National Forest, you can see signs of avoid uh, sleeping in holes in the ground, like natural caves, because there's a risk from uh, fleas from the rats from robotic plague. So what does that have to do with anything? Well, uh, it might shock you to, to learn that uh, most credible researchers today don't believe that the Black Death was caused by bubonic plague at all. And the answer to well, what caused it is they don't know. They don't know what disease it was. What they've learned by tracking the plague and seeing how it spreads and how, how long it takes to spread, because it's a flea on a rat that has to get from the rat to a person and bite them, and then there's a period of time before the disease actually shows itself that the plague spread entirely too fast. And they have these records uh, that were kept meticulously by monks and monasteries about how the disease spread, where it spread to, how quickly it moved once it got there. And what they're looking at now and they're just going, you know what, there's a lot of similarities here, but it just moved too fast. It's just not possible for a disease that starts out in a rat, moves through a flea to a human to move this fast. And it's not me, folks. This is not me saying this. This is people that have dedicated their life to researching our past uh, with medical degrees that say this. And what does that mean? That simply means that there may be a disease out there capable of killing 60% of the planet that's already been there before. We already had it happen, and it went away for whatever reason it does. Disease was run these cycles. We don't even know what it is. So be it H5N1, the bird flu, be it bubonic plague, it doesn't matter. There is always a potential for some virus to show up and start killing people faster than we can deal with replicating some sort of, uh, of antibi- or not antibiotic uh, vaccine for it. And again, every credible researcher says the same thing. And when you understand how a virus works, it doesn't take a big leap to believe that. Um, you know, let's say you want to breed a new trait into a dog. Well, the dog grows up to maybe one and a half, two years old before she's old enough to breed. Then you breed her with a male that you think that, that might have that trait as well. They have, you know, seven puppies, and two of the puppies show the trait. And now if you want a different bloodline, you got to go out and find somebody. And, you, you know, you just, it takes, you know, ten years to try to bring out even a little bit of one new trait in a, in a dog because you have these two-year generations cycles. 
Well, a, a virus's cycle for a full generation is generally about three days. Three days versus two years. With humans, you know, most people don't have children until they're, you know, 20, 20 ish. Kids, unfortunately, at 15, 16 are having kids, but it takes a long time for new traits to be developed in humans. Things that would take a millennia or things that would take a thousand, a hundred thousand years in the kingdom of humans or mammals can happen in two or three months in the viral world. And the number of offspring is also much higher. And the only thing a virus does is replicate itself and evolve and infect. That's its, that's its only mission. That's all that it does. And sooner or later, with numbers alone, it'll win. So that's something we have to be prepared for. And we have to be prepared in that instance mostly for stay in your homes. It is not safe to come outside. And again, that's not malice from our government. I mean, our government does plenty of things that I'll call malice. But if there is a real disease pandemic, what else can you do? What else would you have them do? You have to ask yourself, put yourself in the position of someone in power, and somebody tells you we have a disease spreading like wildfire throughout the nation. We don't know what's causing it, we don't know how to cure it, and it kills half the people that get it. It's overburdening our hospitals, and it's spread by human-to-human contact. We need to do something, oh great leader, what do we do? What can you do other than tell people to stay in their homes? So that's a good reason to prep, is it not? So there's two global disasters that require no no malice and no incompetence to occur. They just can happen on their own. Let's uh let's turn our attention to something a little uh little more malicious. Let's look at something malicious for a second. One way or another, we have to accept the fact that there are people out there that do not like the United States of America. They hate us. Now, you can be a conspiracy theorist and think that there's not a lot of people that hate us, only a few. Or you can be a generalist that believes that everybody hates us because the TV told you so. Or you can be someone that's somewhere in the middle and says the truth is probably somewhere in between the two extremes. But one way or another, you have to acknowledge that there are people out there that think the United States is the cause of their problems. And we can have an event very much like the solar storm that I talked about at the beginning from a man-made activity creating an EMP pulse. And all this requires is detonating a nuclear weapon high in the atmosphere over the United States. And if you did it with five or six, ten or twelve of these things, you could really make sure you basically killed every electrical device in the United States. That's possible. Now, the impact is pretty much the same for us as if a solar storm does it. It doesn't really matter why the lights go out. It just matters that the lights go out. And I want you to think about everything in your home that runs on electricity. And what you would do if the power went off for either reason, and, you know, maybe the government lied to you and said, we'll have it back in three days. But you look at it and you go, yeah, it's not going to happen. Because you just realize the extent of what has occurred. They don't have power to run their stuff, let alone help you get yours back on. So if you ever want to drive this home, go outside, find your switch box, look at the main switch, shut it off, go back in your house for an hour. That that way your food won't defrost and spoil or whatever. Just for an hour, though, be in your home with your power off. And every time you reach for something or try to do something that won't work now, just note it down in a little notebook. And at the end of that exercise, go turn your power back on. 
and ask yourself a question. What would I do if it was going to be like that for 60 days even? Which should be relatively minor for an EMP type event. That's pretty wishful thinking we'd have all the power back in 60 days. But just say to you 60 days. We're not talking we're not talking an inconvenience here anymore. We're talking about a real problem. And that EMP threat is real. And if I were a foreign government trying to uh, take down the United States, I sure as heck wouldn't want to do, uh, you know, let's exchange nuclear weapons day with them. Uh, this would be a much more realistic uh, way to take down a government this size. We are so dependent on power and technology that even uh, 50% success would be a resounding success for whoever was pulling off the operation. So that's something we, re- again, you got to think, this is something that really can happen. Another big threat that I see out there from, from man, and this is a combination of malice and incompetence, is a consolidation of the food industry, specifically the agricultural industry and some of the things that companies like ConAgra and Monsanto are up to. Monsanto is out there genetic, genetically engineering seeds, and I'm not talking about little changes or hybrids. Yeah, you guys that write me emails and go, we're going to find seeds that aren't hybrids. Don't freak out, man. Your hybrids are okay. They're not good for saving seeds. At least most of them aren't. Uh, they're not maybe as reliable when it comes to seed saving, but they're pretty inexpensive, and they have certain advantages, and there's, there's a place for hybrid seeds. What I'm talking about is doing things like building a pesticide into the genetic code of a corn seed so that if a corn weevil eats the corn, it dies, and then feeding that corn to our children. All right, and that's already happened. Again, this is not Alex Jones. It's not chemtrails in the sky. It's already happened. No one, no one, not even Monsanto anymore denies it. Yeah, we did that, and it's perfectly safe. Don't worry about it. All right, I'm talking about doing things like splicing the genes from a fish. Splicing the the genes from a fish into cotton seed. You might say, I don't eat cotton. I wear it. I'm not real worried about it. I'm not worried about wearing cotton like that either. I'm really not. But uh, cottonseed oil is in a lot of our foods. We're not guaranteed in any way, shape, or form that that genetically altered uh, cotton is not in our food supply. And my guess would be that it is. I'm talking about the fact that they're doing things like they've developed a terminator gene. Because they don't want farmers to save their seeds. So to combat this, they've come up with a gene that basically tells the the seed, after generation one, kill yourself. Don't reproduce. And the only way to make that seed reproduce is to spray it with a special chemical. And if you spray it with a special chemical, the seed will reproduce. And Monsanto, if you read their straight facts or whatever they call it, call it on their website, which would be called the bullshit spin, um, says that, you know, yeah, we kind of, like, did this, but it's not real because we're not releasing it. And we have no plans to release it because some people don't like it, but uh, don't worry about it. It's pretty much what their little statement says. Well, here's the thing, guys. Number one, that means they want to, and they're just looking for a way to spin it the right way where they can get away with doing it. Number two, um, so they already did it. (laughs) They've already done it. They've already grown these seeds. They've already proved that they work. Well, when you release something at the botanical level, at a plant level, 
into the biosphere, it cannot be contained. These little things called bees and flies and different things. And the wind carries pollen and it gets out and it infects other crops. So, if they keep doing this research with these Terminator genes, and there's no reason to believe that they won't, isn't it highly possible that at some point, let's say the Terminator gene infiltrates our corn supply throughout the United States and starts killing off our seed banks? And then Monsanto can come spray it to save it, but we won't know that it doesn't work until we have the seed and plant it in the ground and it doesn't grow the next year. That's a national threat, at least, if not global. And it's real. And it, I wish that this was a foil hat, you know, subject. That this, this, this ignorance, this arrogance, this maliciousness, and this attack on our food supply was crazy people talk. But I've done enough research, folks. It's not crazy talk. It is what's going on. If you want to really get an understanding of how bad this is, go to Google Video and search for The Future of Food and watch that documentary. Watch The World According to Monsanto as well. Those two documentaries will tell you things. And I'll tell you, there's there's a little bit of spit in there because obviously they're kind of, you know, the almost, I'm going to call them like hippie-ish, you know, in their, their delivery. But you can't argue with facts no matter what the source is. So that's another threat that we really have to worry about that could impact us at a global level. So what else out there could bring about what we call the end of the world as we know it in the uh, the survivalist community? Well, there's a lot of things. I mean, back in the 70s, everybody was worried about nuclear war, and pretty much people have decided that's not really that big of a threat anymore. I think nuclear war still is a threat. I think if it's on a grand scale, I think, even think the people living in, in bunkers may not make it. I really do. If it's the full scale, you know, China and the United States, or Russia and the United States, or China and Russia for that matter, um, full scale attack, I, I don't think there's much left of the planet. Now, I've heard from people who say, yeah, you can survive, and, and maybe you can, but um, full scale, I don't know. There's just so, there's so many weapons out there. Uh, that if everybody launched everything. Now, the reality is they probably wouldn't launch everything. And then we'd have this kind of limited-scale nuclear war, and, and that's a real threat still. Um, the, the bigger threat to me, though, is these smaller countries that are trying to get their hands on nuclear weapons. And, you know, you say whatever you want about George Bush, and there's a lot of criticism I have for that guy. But... He did make one statement that I found to be very profound. And before you say, Bush, profound, hold on, listen to this. He said, I'm a lot less worried about the country that wants a hundred nuclear weapons than I am the country that wants one. I thought, you know what, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Because the country that wants one probably wants to use it. Probably has a place in mind to put it. Well, the country that wants a thousand probably wants to create this, uh, you know, the same the same standoff that the U.S. and the Soviets did with mutually assured destruction. Look, you don't want us, we don't want you. Let's keep our hands off each other. And I don't think that's a good way to go. But you could understand why people would try to put themselves in that position. Think of yourself right now. If you were some dictator in some third world nation, and you thought you were in the United States crosshairs, wouldn't you be trying to get your hands on nuclear weapons? Not obviously, so that they come in and do something before it happens, but wouldn't you like to just one day phone up the president and go, hey, you know what, we've got like uh, 500 nuclear weapons, 
And uh, we don't mean any harm to anybody, but uh, if you try to invade us, we're going to nuke you. So we're on an equal playing field with you guys now, and uh, we hope you'll leave us alone. There's, you know, you could say it's oversimplifying it, but if you are wanting to stay in power right now, the best thing you can do in your nation is uh, is have something that scares the United States to the point where we won't come in and take it away from you. That's how a lot of people think, and that's that's what's driving a lot. So nuclear war is still out there. I put it way out on the pro, you know pro, probability, and actually I think everybody that would uh, t- would launch a you know any kind of sizable war knows what it really means, and it, it mitigates the chance of it happening. What about complete total collapse of the United States economy? You know, beyond Argentina, what happened down there? You know, Weimar Republic style. Is it possible? You bet it's possible. Is it probable? I don't know how probable it is. There are so many systems of redundancy built into our economy. And if you look at what just happened to it over the past year, well, first of all, I want to, I want to point one thing out that I really want people to get their, their heads around right now. You keep hearing our president and our former president said the same thing, so this is not partisan. We're going through the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression. Folks, I went to Walmart this weekend. There had to be 2,500 people at one Walmart store. Always makes me grow up Walmarts. At least. There were people everywhere, and they were spending money like crazy. I'm not saying that's good. I'm just saying, if you know an old-timer that was still with us, that was around during the Great Depression, if you ask them, this don't look nothing like the Great Depression. Nothing at all. But, but it was bad. It was tough. And it's still tough. And it's still going to get worse before it gets better. But even with all of this, look around you. You see that everything is still functioning reasonably. The, the, the issue is, will the Fed ever just do something totally stupid? I guess that's kind of a dumb question, honestly, right? You know, I mean, they've done some pretty stupid things lately. But I mean, total, like, like kill themselves stupid. Like instead of printing, you know, $4 trillion, printing $40 trillion. And they might, and they might have to, because there's a $55 trillion hole in Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. $55 trillion, just there. So one day they may have to print, and they pretty much already said this, uh, when Chairman Bernanke was asked about Social Security and guaranteeing that the funds would be there, he said, we can guarantee without any concern whatsoever that we'll be able to pay the bill. The money will be there. We can guarantee the funds. We just can't guarantee their value. We say that again. The chairman of the Federal Reserve said when asked about Social Security liabilities in the future, we can guarantee the dollars, we just can't guarantee their value. In other words, you know, we said we're going to be paying ex, old person X $2,400 a month of Social Security in 2030. I can guarantee you the Federal Reserve can send $2,300 to him. I just can't tell you what it will buy. It might not buy a fast food meal by then. It might buy ten of them. But it ain't going to buy what it buys today. That's that's a fundamental that we, we know. But a complete, total, absolute, the U.S. dollar is worthless, can it happen? Yeah, it can happen. And it ain't happening right now. It's not going to happen right now, and I'll tell you why. Because this mess that we're in, the rest of the world is in the mess with us. They can't afford, they can't afford to let us go down right now. 
China cannot afford to let us go down right now. Even Russia cannot afford to let us go down right now. Iran cannot afford to let us go down right now. Venezuela cannot afford to let us go down right now. That's the reality that we're in today. And the whole world is united in this, you know, Bretton Woods 2 ideal of let's save the economy. And we have the Chinese and the Russians saber-rattling with, we need a new currency. They can't do it yet. Right? What they're doing is they're priming the pump. What they're, what they're waiting for is for everything to be decent again. Maybe not great, but decent again worldwide. The world economy doing well. To say, look, we, we, that was a close one. Now we really need to look at this world currency seriously because we don't want that to happen again, do we? And at that point you'll see the rest of the world with the opportunity, I'm not saying they're going to do it, but the opportunity to begin to distance themselves from us. And once they do that, once they, they get into a position where if we go down, they don't, when this type of thing happens again, there won't be any reason for them to unite behind propping us up. And for them to get in the game with us. And then all we can do is print money. And all they're going to do is start calling in their debts on us. And could that drive the economy into oblivion? You bet it could. What I think more, is more likely is like a slow spiral into a real depression. And all these people that think, oh, this is terrible, this is like the Great Depression, that are so freaking out of touch with reality. They're sucking down their Diet Pepsi and Big Mac that they just paid three bucks for, driving a car that they can't afford, but yet they have a payment plan that lets them drive it, on their way to an office to hold up a desk for a day, and they're thinking, yeah, man, this is terrible. They have no freaking clue how tough times really are. What tough is really like. Those people are in for a rude awakening if we ever do have a Great Depression. In the Great Depression, folks, people lined up to get a bowl of soup. And the next time somebody tells you this is like the Great Depression, ask them when the last time is they stood in freaking line to get a bowl of soup unless they were in the army and uh, the cooks did something nice for you late and on a cold evening. Because that's the last time I stood in line for a, for a cup of soup was I, when I was in the army and it was cold as heck out. And the cooks decided, hey, you know what, even though we already did chow, let's throw these guys together a couple of mermaids full of uh, hot chicken soup and hand it out to them. That's the last time I was in a soup line. People in the Great Depression were in a soup line to feed themselves. And yep, it could happen again. So, you know, this is not a real happy theme show. This is not like, gee, this is, uh, this is different than talking about growing your garden and, uh, and having a positive outlook. But I still want you to have a positive outlook, even though these things are out there. Even though these things can happen. Even though when you look at all of them, you say, man, this is not 60 days worth of food storage. So why does Jack talk about 60 days worth of food storage as a first step, or even 30, or even two weeks? Because all of the other things that we talk about are far more likely and happen to people all the time and people come through them all the time. I'm just trying to help you figure out how to come through them better, how to live a more sustainable life so that you can deal with you know, a situation as bad as one of these or something as mundane as you know, damage to your home during a storm or a job loss or, God forbid, loss of a loved one. So you can deal with these common everyday events better. And if you start out with being sustainable for 60 days, 
then it's really easy to do what you did again and be sustainable for 120 days. And once you do that, you just do what you did again, and now you're sustainable for 240 days. And, folks, that's three-fourths of a year. It's about seven to eight months that you can go and deal with whatever comes your way. And that's a lot for anybody to do. Having a means of defense, in all of these scenarios, you're going to have people trying to take away from other people because they didn't prepare. They're not ready, and now they're hungry, and now they're starving, and now they need something. And you have to be able to defend yourself. That doesn't mean you can't have a positive outlook on life and know that, well, at least I'll be able to take care of those around me, no matter what happens. So, you know, when you, when you think about these bigger threats, and there's a ton more of them, there's at least a dozen more that have the potential to completely disrupt or exterminate life on the planet. You know, don't think a meteor or a comet can't hit the planet. It's happened before. It will happen again. Probability low. Impact high. Depends on how big it is, what it's made out of, where it impacts, you know, and how long we have to prepare for it, what the results are going to be. But the first warning of that could be the impact. We may never see it till it happens. That's something that's out there. There's a volcano the size of Rhode Island underneath Yellowstone National Park. Odds of it erupting, low. The impact of it does, it will change life in the northern hemisphere forever. Well, I wouldn't say forever, but for forever for you. Because one human lifetime will be insignificant in the impact of something like that. It will create a, a, a miniature ice age in the northern climates. It will cause massive damage if it ever happens. Again, probability very, very low. Impact very, very high. So these big threats are there. It's just up to you to decide, well, does that mean that because there's a one in one thousandth of one hundredth of one percent chance that tomorrow we're going to be hit by an asteroid, that I'm going to choose to live in the middle of Idaho in a hole in the ground, or am I going to go on living my life like a normal person, being as best prepared as I can? Those are your choices to make. I'll never tell you what choice to make. I'll just tell you how I evaluate them and what my choice is. And I think one of the best things that we can do as a people is be honest about the fact that these things are out there. To not have ostrich syndrome and bury our heads in the sand. To realize that there is a true potential for these bad things to happen. And be prepared to endure them if they come. But live our lives as best we can while we're here because we only get to go around one time. This has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. You can scream, and you can holler, it really doesn't matter, cause it all gets spent.